Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Joining today is immigration attorney and author Erica Cisneros. She provides assistance to immigrants seeking humanitarian visas, a category that serves individuals who have fallen victim to violent crime, sexual abuse, human trafficking, domestic violence, among others. Her new book, Honest Immigration, How to Stay in the U.S. Legally and Become a Permanent Resident Due to Mistreatment, details common scenarios and the steps to obtain an appropriate status. As COVID-19 continues and spouses spend more time indoors with one another, reporting numbers of domestic mistreatment have spiked. Erica shares stories and what immigrants can do if they find themselves in similar situations. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. The National Domestic Abuse Helpline has seen a 49% increase in calls over the last three weeks. Yes. So now there are people who may be in abusive relationships, but they're stuck with their abuser. This is a, a unique result of this pandemic. I'm interested in how has that sort of developed over time in the, the cases that you've seen. I first started doing family immigration, uh, family petitions to be specific, mm -hmm. which is, as you probably already know, where you have someone in your family who petitions for you and they are either a legal permanent resident or a United States citizen. And then they help the undocumented person to gain legal status. That process, the family petition, in my opinion, is very strict. There is, you know, the 10-year bar, the permanent bar, as we also refer to it as, where if somebody came here and then they, you know, just, and this is a quick summary, but if they've been here for more than a year, they left the country and then undocumented and then return undocumented, that person then falls under that 10-year bar. And what I started noticing um, when I started to just focus on immigration and only do immigration work, right. I would have these people who would come to me, you know, potential clients who would come to me, but I couldn't help them because they were under the permanent bar. They were under this 10-year bar. They had already gone back to their home country once, twice, sometimes multiple times in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years that they've lived here. And so I started noticing that I had to turn away people and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you actually gain your legal permanent residency because you are under this permanent bar and then help them understand what that meant. Right. So I started going to a lot of conferences where immigration conferences, where I started learning more and more about these humanitarian visas, which are VAWA, the U visa and the T visa. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that struck me was the fact that, well, depending on the case, of course, because as you know, every case is different, but they forgive the 10-year bar, this permanent bar. Hmm. And they also allow people to go through the process and gain legal status while they are here in the United States. And they don't have to leave the United States back to their home country for consular processing. And that is something that most people fear. Because even those that had an option, as soon as I would let them know that a family petition was an option, but that they would have to exit the country and go to an interview abroad, I would say that 
maybe only 25% of those potential clients would actually become clients because they all heard the horror stories of people leaving for these interviews and having to stay in their home countries for months, sometimes even two, three years, and not be able to return until immigration made a decision. Right, right. With this humanitarian visa, it sounds like that it's more of a streamlined process. What criteria is needed in order to receive this humanitarian visa? Okay, so it does. it is one of those processes where mm-hmm. you don't need anyone to sponsor you. You don't need anyone to petition, uh, file a petition on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Every uh, These three particular humanitarian visas each have their basic requirements. I mean, they're not just an option where if someone finds out about it, they can say, Ooh, I want that. Right, right, right. You know, you don't just get to you don't just get to pick one. You have to meet at least the basic requirements. Right. And then of course, consulting with an immigration attorney allows the attorney to determine if the client in fact qualifies for that particular visa. So for example, there's VAWA. Well you need that relationship. First of all, so let's just take the example of VAWA for a um, a spouse. Uh, if you, you have never what VAWA been, is? <laughs> oh yes, I am so sorry. Yeah. Yes, so um, VAWA is Violence Against Women's Act, and it's not just for women; it's also for men. Um, and in fact, there's more to it. There's different uh, relationships that actually qualify. So it's um, what I w- what I would say is I never say domestic violence because that word just sort of um, people tend to clam up, I guess you could say, or shut down. So I always refer to it as mistreatment. And then I'm more specific in asking the questions, but there, you know, it could occur between spouses or it could happen between like a parent who's undocumented mm-hmm. that has a U.S. citizen son or daughter that is at least 21 years old. And it's that son or daughter is the one who is uh, basically abusing the parent in some way. So there's that as well. And then there is the child of a um, U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident. So there's different types of relationships that would qualify. And for VAWA, you need to be in one of those relationships or have one of those types of relationships to begin with. So if somebody comes to me and they say, I've been a victim of domestic violence, and they just flat out say it, I'm a victim of domestic violence, but their spouse, whom they're a victim of domestic violence from, is undocumented as well, VAWA is not going to help them in any way. So that at that point, there's no point in us discussing VAWA because it isn't an option for them. Mm-hmm. And so there's also the T visa. The T visa is another one of the humanitarian visas that is for um, victims of human trafficking. And many people don't understand what human trafficking is. For example, I'll have people that will say, well, I worked at this company and I worked lots of overtime hours and they didn't pay me. And I'll say, okay, so then what happened? Like, did you ask them for your pay? Like, what happened next? And they'll say, well, I got mad and I just quit. I'll say, that that is not, I I hate that that happened. And there is a court to be able to go and fight and, and try to, you know, maybe get some of that pay right. um but you'd have to that take it falls them. under human trafficking yes I, I yes and i know connection right i i don't either mm. but 
it's crazy how often it happens. Mm. People will constantly, that's one of the ones that I hear a lot is people that think that human trafficking, because when I talk about the abuse, I don't flat out say if you're a victim or if you've been abused, I talk about being mistreated Mm -hmm. because people then, they can then understand and they can start to um, almost Mm self-diagnose. And so I think that sometimes when they hear the word mistreatment, they think, well, I wasn't paid the money I was owed. I was mistreated, but they totally miss the rest of the explanation that has to do with being, you know, forced to do labor or being forced um, into a uh, committing a commercial sex act. So they totally misunderstand that, well, you weren't forced to work, you worked and then you weren't paid. So that's not a T visa. That's not human trafficking, but somehow they, maybe it's the way that I explain it and they just don't understand me. (laughs) Right. But that connection is made very often. Right. Right. I I think that's very important. So to understand the illegitimate uh, justifications for these forms of visas, but could you give us some common cases that would fall, that would be legitimate and fall under the humanitarian visas, some cases that you see that are prevalent? So when it comes to VAWA, one of the ones that I see often is a person who is married to a um, you know legal permanent resident or a U.S. citizen, hmm. and they've been in that marriage, and their spouse has never wanted to help them. Or maybe at some point they started to help them with the family petition, which has several steps, and they never finished. They never helped them to gain the legal permanent residency. And Meaning they ab- abandoned them or they just stopped? They stopped. Yes, they stopped the process. Right. Some of them will start to use um, the actual process and the fact that they are helping their spouse to threaten and manipulate Mm -hmm. the undocumented spouse. So many times I will get, um, you know, after I've, someone has found out that this, you know, maybe they heard it from a friend that I help their friend with, you know, a VAWA case, they'll come to me and they'll tell me their story and they'll say, my spouse isn't going to help me. You know, um, we've been together, we've started the process, then they canceled it and then they never did anything. And most of them, have a family petition that their spouse filed, which is just the first step of the process for the family petition. And it's been several years that nothing has been done. And it's because the spouse that has, you know, that is a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident just refuses for whatever reason. And it's, and it's not just that it's a perfect marriage. There's always problems in that marriage. Uh, Problems where there is, you know, there is domestic violence, even though they don't come out and say it, you know, they will say things like uh, they give me an allowance, you know, once a week. Um, I'm, I'm not allowed to work. Um, I'm not allowed to talk to my family. Um, I'm not allowed to go out without them. Yeah. And strangely enough, it doesn't just happen with women. I'm actually seeing more and more cases of a male being mm. in a type of relationship where and their their abuse isn't necessarily physical with the male it's usually exactly mm-hmm. economical emotional psychological mm-hmm. um and and so i think in in our just in society there is 
Um, a lot of, there are a lot of people who are victims of domestic violence, mm. but some of them don't recognize it. Those who do usually don't come forward. Um, and so it's, that's half the battle is getting them to understand that, well, first of all, you you do fall under the category of being right. a victim of domestic violence. Identifying it, yeah. Whenever you have a situation where there's two people in a relationship and one has leverage, and in this case, uh, whether they're in the United States and in order for their spouse to get citizenship, uh, they need their help, they need their signature, they need them to be a part of the process. Uh, the one who's yeah. living in the U.S. So they're using that power as as leverage within their relationship, and it can turn abusive very quickly. Right, right. Um, that that's uh, interesting. Now, is there in terms of human trafficking? I'm sure you get less of these cases, but um, would would an instance like that look like the human trafficking cases? What I see a lot is three different types of scenarios, so to say. The first is when people come here into the United States, and it doesn't matter if it's the first time, the second time, but when they come here using what we refer to as a coyote, which is the guide that they many times pay to help bring them mm. into the United States, they make this sort of deal with the coyote abroad. And as soon as they come here, and cross over into the United States, right. the coyote many times will just switch it up and say, okay, well, I know that it was only going to be $1,500, but now you owe me $3,000. Uh, and until your family pays, mm. I'm not letting you go. Wow. At that point, the person is held captive in a house, apartment, warehouse. They're not allowed to leave. There's usually, the coyote usually does not work alone. They usually are part of a group. And so what that coyote that crossed the individual will do is hand the person off to the rest of the group that already has a house filled with other individuals in the same situation who are literally just there waiting for their family members to come up with the money before they're allowed to be released. Now, so this is like a part, operation, like a, a business yes, setup. Yes. Hmm. Okay. And these, for example, like it's not just about being held and locked up in one of these houses. They also have to be forced to work. Hmm. So there are people that are, while they're held, and I find this a lot with when the person is younger or the youngest in the group, right. they will be the ones to be forced to clean the restrooms or cook for everybody else, especially the women. They will, be, they will be the ones that will be forced to do this work for all of the other people, mainly men, that are being held there. And so sometimes people in this situation, they don't realize they're victims of human trafficking because they think that this maybe is still part of what is required of them in some way because they owe this money. Uh, yeah. And e even though they're being, you know, many times beaten, many times, you know, held at gunpoint, other people are being beaten in front of them that, do, that yeah. don't obey. They still feel you like know, they're in debt. That, that. Yes. Hmm. Yes. 
And so that is one of the most common scenarios that I that I see. Another is once the person is working here in the United States, mm -hmm. they will start working somewhere where they go and apply for work and the supervisor or, you know, the owner of the company will, will find out they're undocumented and then start to take advantage of them and will start to threaten them and basically say, well, you can't leave. You have to do this. And they sometimes will pay them half of the amount that was originally promised. But the whole point is that they, they are now not allowed to leave the work because they are afraid of the threats that are being made to them. And usually the threats are, if you stop coming to work, then I'm going to make sure that immigration is on your doorstep. Right. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to have your kids taken away. Right. I'm going to you know, send for them to get you and your family. And so then they don't leave. They can't leave the work. And these people may be individuals that we see at our local supermarket while we're grocery shopping. And we have no idea that every day they are returning to a job where they have to return because they are being threatened. I mean, it's a common thread. There's a person in power and they're taking advantage of people in vulnerable situations. And when people are, are leaving their home country and going to a, a new country, a land that they've never been before, uh, it's a certain level of vulnerability. Some take advantage of that, whether it's uh, a spouse or a person helping them um, come into uh, America or an employer. They're saying, hey, okay, if you don't listen to what I'm telling you or what uh, I want you to do, then I'm going to call the authorities or I'm going to send you back or you won't be able to live out your American dream in some way. So these people in vulnerable situations and circumstances uh, fall victim to it and, and don't speak out against it. Correct. Because it's more than just being here undocumented and hoping to live that American dream. Many times these people are here working to help feed their families back, back home. home. Right. And so it's not just, oh, I'm going back home. It's my family's going to starve because the reason they have food on the table is because they are here working. They have a lot more that they are having to work. For. I guess you could say it'd be a, a loss. Yes. Mm -hmm. They have responsibilities, not only to themselves, but also back home. So last part before we move on, I was curious about earlier, you were saying for these guides, right? The, the guides. Now, what if you come from a poor family and you don't have that $3,000? Maybe you just had the $1,000 uh, and they raised it to $3,000. What do you do if you have nobody back home or that has that type of money or you yourself don't have the money? Do they make you pay that off in some sort of way? Yes. And one thing that I've noticed, at least in my experience, people that come here that end up in that situation they have somebody, somebody here in the country that will gather that money together to help pay, you know, whether they have to borrow or many people have to give, but they're able to get it. Now, I have seen in my experience in a, a few cases where they were forced to work it off and they were being told, well, since your family can't pay the money, you will continue to work for me. 
and they will stay there and work for sometimes months. So I've seen some people that have actually been with their guide for a couple of years working. Mm-hmm. One, one thing I can say is that these people eventually are let go, mm-hmm. whether it be because they just don't need them anymore or they're taking up space where they can put another individual that they may feel they will actually get money from, but they eventually, you know, let them go or this person will escape. So one, this person eventually ends up out of that situation, either by escaping or they're let go because they have no need for them. They've already worked them enough and gotten enough out of them. Right. Now, if for anybody who feels like they're in a situation like this, whether with a, a significant other, a guide, a coyote, that's what you call it? Coyote. Co- yes. Yeah. A coyote, which is a coyote. Right. Um, <laughs> or employer, what are the first steps? What are the first initial steps to addressing this or a, a filing for this sort of application? The first step I would say is going to an attorney that focuses on these types of cases. And the reason I say that is because I cannot tell you how many people have come to me and said, I don't understand why am I just finding out from you about these options if I've seen three, four, five other attorneys over the last five, 10, 15 years and no attorney has ever told me that this was an option. Mm -hmm. I will also have people that will tell me I went to an attorney and I told them that my husband was not going to help me because He's, you know, and maybe, maybe they did, or maybe they didn't tell the attorney that the husband was abusive, Mm -hmm. but try to, in other ways, tell the attorney that the marriage just wasn't working out. And the advice they were given was, well, make it work because this is your only opportunity. Forcing then the victim in the marriage to have the burden of trying to fix a marriage or stay in an abusive marriage. Because this is the only opportunity that they have to gain legal status so that they can stay with their children, who are usually U.S. citizens. And also, fortunately, your book, Honest Immigration, How to Stay in the U.S. Legally and Become a Permanent Resident Due to Mistreatment, that's coming out May 4th, correct? That is correct. Right. Will people be able to get to learn about the different visa types and the different types of situations that would qualify you to be under one of these categories? Yes. The book will give lots of examples. It will also help anybody who's reading it to understand a lot of the issues Mm -hmm. that come about when trying to determine if someone qualifies. If you flat out ask a person if they are a victim of domestic violence, the first thing that they will say, even if they are, is no. I mean, nine times out of 10, you're going to get a quick no. So it also addresses the way that you can approach questioning or screening an individual to be able to determine if they qualify. Right. So it's also a matter of helping to understand exactly how to determine if someone fits the T visa. Mm -hmm. 
And this book will help anyone to determine where they fit and if they meet the basic requirements. Now, of course, there's the law and there's so much more that you need to know about each visa. I try to cover a lot of it. But of course, you always as an attorney have to go to the law. But I really do feel that if someone doesn't know about these humanitarian visas and wants to learn about them, I think this is a short book that is really good at helping to explain each of them. And it helps understand them quickly. Right. You're helping people in real world situations um, and they're in compromising situations and they need to get out of them as as quickly and as safely as possible. So we need people that are dedicated to this line of work and helping people transition into a new country as safely as as possible. So um this conversation, unfortunately, won't end anytime soon. This will continue to happen. But as long as people are informed about what they can do and the different avenues that they can take, that will make them much more prepared to tackle on anything that comes their way. So I, I definitely uh, appreciate you working in this field and, and this specification. It was a pleasure. And, and thank you so much for the interview. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.